Hello, and welcome to Shoe Swiss on Tap 2023, the podcast where we talk to each other and to you about what's going on in the world of pensions. This is episode one of our risk transfer series. Hopefully you listened to our prologue episode on surplus issues in risk transfer projects. I'm joined again today by Adam Davies, Managing Director of K3 Advisory, together with Becky Wood, Trustee Director at Vedette. Adam and Becky, welcome and thank you for joining me. So the topic for discussion today is risk transfer. We're specifically focusing on the transfer of defined benefits to an insurer starting with a buy-in exercise and then followed by an absolute transfer of members to an insurer combined with winding up the scheme. So Adam and Becky, last year with a bumper year in the risk transfer space and continues to be an area that's keeping our colleagues and, and myself very busy, what sort of trends are you both seeing in terms of clients and deal sizes? I think, Suzanne, you're right to focus the start on last year and just Let's just summarise where where that one got to. I mean, there was approximately two hundred individual transactions and, and roughly thirty billion of liabilities that switched between pension schemes to insurers. And since then, the growth and demand for for buy-ins is such that you know my expectation is probably twice as many transactions will happen this year. So you know, certainly three to four hundred, and I think it could get close to to four hundred. Premium-wise, I think it's um, difficult to say because. Uh, the vast majority of those schemes that will transact will actually be small and mid-sized schemes. But the thing that drives the premium volume is is the big ones. Um, obviously, this year we've had the biggest transaction in market history um, at $6.5 billion, the RSA deal. And we're aware that there are multiple billion-pound-plus schemes at market. And, and if most or, or all of those transact, then, then it's going to be a record-breaking year for premium volumes as well. Becky, how about you? What are you seeing? Yeah, uh, so the pipeline of schemes that we've got over debt, we expect that of our 400 plus schemes at 25 to 30% are targeting a buying in the next 18 months. Um, and then we see that rising to probably around 4% loss um, of schemes targeting a buying in the next three years or so. Um, and given the movements in markets of those, we expect there's quite a fair proportion of them that are already in surplus or you know within this, this check writing distance. And we do think that's probably reflective across the wider market as well, especially when you take account of the smaller schemes where they've maybe not got as much handle on the funding position um, and therefore probably a number that are better funded um, than they already than they realise. So I think what it means is there's going to be a lot of schemes where they're in a bit of a holding pattern due to capacity or liquidity issues. And in terms of what we're seeing as well, so in terms of opportunities that are coming into the business, we've seen a lot more with a risk transfer element to them. And this is where a sponsor is actually looking for a professional trustee to come onto the board um, to guide the scheme towards a buy-in, which I think shows us as well that sponsors are getting ever more engagement in getting the schemes off the balance sheets. No, I, I agree. I think we're seeing very similar trends. I think what we're finding actually is perhaps that the larger schemes that we look after, although they're in very favourable funding positions, they're looking at things much more on the longer term horizon. But I think the smaller sub 100 million schemes and, and our average deal sizes have probably been under under 30 million over the last 18 months. It's it's a trend that's continuing and I think we're seeing a growing number of projects. So we wanted to share our experiences and, and thinking between us with, with listeners and in particular what the pitfalls and issues to be aware of 
how can the process be run as smoothly and painlessly as possible? So I think let's start at the beginning in terms of, is this a dialogue that's being employer-driven or trustee-driven? Historically, what we'd found is that it was being driven in response to corporate transactions or significant property disposals where the trustee said, well, okay, you've, you've disposed of this asset or you've disposed of this part of the business. That's going to impact on the covenant. And actually, we think that an easy solution and a simple solution would be to move the scheme towards buy-in and buy-out. So I don't know, is that something you're finding the same or has there been a bit of a change in the last year or so? I mean, most of our engagements uh, that we that we do are, are trustee uh, engagements because obviously it's trustee least take advice. But I think um, primarily, the, you know, scheme funding, particularly at the small end, has um, has improved to a certain extent. That from an employer's perspective, you know, this is probably the best position they've ever seen their scheme in, and and a lot of employers are keen to to you know uh, bank those gains and, and ideally do a transaction. So at the small end, um, you know, the, there's obviously the the dynamic that often the trustee and the and the company there's overlap and they're wearing two hats so so involved at the, at the mid end our engagement with the trustee but these processes never really work unless trustee and sponsor are, are aligned and and it needs it needs engagement from the sponsor and trustee buying to make a buyout happen is that yeah, something you'll find the same becky we're we're seeing both so i think it really depends on the circumstances of the schemes so as i mentioned a minute ago we're seeing a lot more opportunities coming in which are sponsor driven where they're looking for support with risk transfer so they've already made that decision that they do want to target a buyout and for those schemes where we're already appointed you know a big part of our of our our role is actually thinking strategically thinking about end game whatever that might be in journey planning so you know, at that point, that might be more trustee-led um, because um, I think um, there's a real big education piece as well that's really important, uh, particularly where the sponsor might not have its own advisor. So historically, sponsors, you know, they hadn't tended to look past the next valuation and a lot of sponsors saw buyout as being, you know, really expensive and unachievable. That's now shifted a lot, a lot partly because the increase in, you know, professional trustees coming onto the board, speaking with sponsors, um, you know, advisors as well, um, supporting with understanding, but also with that improvement in funding position. But I still do think there is a cohort of sponsors where they still view buyout as unachievable. And that's where, you know, your professional trustee and your advisors come on, come in to actually provide that education. So so in terms of, of getting that end game and making that a reality, whether it's employer-driven or trustee-driven, what are, what are your first key steps that you see as important and fundamental in, in that process? So, I, I mean, I think the planning stage of a buyout is, is has always been important. You know, it's it's an irre, irreversible transaction. Um, you need to be well prepared, but I think that's more than ever important now in such a busy market to demonstrate to the insurer uh, that your scheme has, is well prepared. And I think there's, there's a, a number of areas on this. I mean, affordability, and understanding, you know, it's not just the buyout premium. There's a lot of other costs that go into this, whether it be GMP equalization, you know, the actual buyout project costs, winding up a scheme, and making sure the employer knows these um, benefits and data, you know, um, very, very important to, to, to understand those well. Um, assets and illiquidity becoming a much bigger issue as schemes have shot forward in funding and therefore not on the journey they thought they were on. And then, and then, lastly, I and mean, obviously very relevant to, to Becky's role, you know, 
governance and in employer engagements in these processes. Otherwise, they're, they're going to fail. What about you, Becky? What are you seeing? I suppose a first first point, which might seem a bit of a given, that I think that you need to make sure that that target's actually agreed. Um, so you've you've got your sponsor, or your trustees who might be driving it. They might be driving it in uh, collaboration with each other. Um, but you know, building that collaborative working relationship and and setting that end target for the scheme, I think, is is obviously the first point. Um, but then following that, there's there's quite a lot of different things to be thinking about. A lot of which Adam's just touched on. Um, one, one point I'd say is that there's a lot of things to be doing um, and it's not necessarily a case of doing these, you know, step by step, that a lot of them will run parallel to each other. So it's important, I think, to understand the funding position and whether there's a deficit or surplus. Um, you need to decide on on who's going to advise on the transaction. So we're now seeing it become, you know, more commonplace for the risk transfer work to actually be part of the tender. It's the biggest piece of work that's likely to be done in relation to the scheme. And um, so it's important that you get the right person or people uh, to support the trustees and sponsor. And what I see and we at Videtsi working really well is um, setting up a joint working group. And what's really important is to ensure that you've got the right people sitting on the joint working group and the joint working group has got the right powers as well and the benefit of the joint working group is it enables quick and efficient decision making it can take advantage of market opportunities so you want the key decision makers particularly from the sponsor sat on it and that becomes even more crucial as things pick up pace and you get closer to transacting so what you don't want to happen is for transactions to fall down because you've you know been unable to get the key decision makers um, on a call at the right time. I think having regular calls is really important because it just makes it easier if everyone's around the table, around the team's table. Um, that just makes it easier to head things off and identify issues early. And and as you say about the practicalities of people's availabilities, because you don't want to find you're trying to sign things when everyone disappeared on holiday or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree entirely with that. Um, and I think that, you know, once you've you've carried out those steps as well, that what you need to next be doing is setting your strategy um, and putting a plan in place. And there's lots of things, again, some of which Adam touched on that feed into setting that strategy, such as your funding gap, how it will be closed, will this be a contributions or investment returns or a mixture of both. You could be lucky, it might be in a surplus. So you need to start thinking about how you deal with that. Um, and then from the company perspective, um, there's accounting impacts that uh, they'll want to be considering. And then a big one is definitely the investment strategy. So the first point is how we get the portfolio buyout ready, lock down that risk. Um, it's important to consider things like the hedge. So that's interest rates and inflation and how you hedge insure pricing. Uh, but a real key one is li the liquidity of your assets. So with the improvement of funding positions and market turmoil, many schemes are finding themselves being fully funded on a buyout basis or in a surplus, but they're holding liquid assets. So I think this needs to be checked really early on in the process to make sure that you've got sufficient time um, to establish how that's going to be dealt with. Um, so they can't be redeemed in time. What are the other options? Things such as in species transfers to the insurers, deferred premiums, selling assets on the secondary market. So, you know, they've each got advantages, disadvantages and risks and they just all need to be considered uh, really early on. Something that, that we're also finding important, which the Joint Working Party helps with, is, is managing employer expectations. Because I think sometimes employers are told, well, 
the assets of the scheme are at this value. This is what we think it would be to to buy out the scheme, and and, and they take that away to their board as a as a fixed amount. And it's quite important that they're educated and aware that it is still a moving target, albeit that it should be hopefully moving favourably. But it just enables that that expectation to be managed. And Adam, what are you finding around price tracking processes? Yeah, well, I, I think I had called the point about um, employer expectations, um, and and th- there's the point that you know, obviously, y- you want to make sure the employer on these type of transactions doesn't get fixated with one number at one point in time. I mean, I think the the other thing I'd I'd say on employer expectations is also being clear with them and educating them on the process around timing. You know, what is a buy-in? What is a buy-out? Um, what do they mean for the scheme? What do they mean for the trustees? What do they mean for their uh, for the, the employer? Um, often, if the scheme's well prepared, after some of these liquidity issues, you know, the, the actual route to buying can be relatively quick. Um, but I think it's important that the sponsor knows that actually then there's, there's a whole other process to go through data cleansing, individual policies, wind up of the scheme. And, and you know, the reality is that's takes a, look, a fair amount of time, a lot longer than getting the buying in place and, and actually probably is going to start to, um, you know, eat up more and more time uh, as the market and more transactions are done. And I think it's just making sure employers are aware of this and expectations are managed from the start. So I think what we we generally find in, in the next stage of the process or, or at the kickoff stage is that we will generally provide some initial advice on the legal aspects and specifically we'll be looking at the scheme trustee and rules to check what powers trustees have to enter into the buy-in contract because at this point in time it's it's effectively an investment decision but ultimately it is leading to that end game and, and the winding up process so what we'll also do is look at the winding up process specifically around well how is the winding up process triggered what notice requirements what timing requirements are because we find it helps with the planning to identify at the outset who has what powers how the scheme is actually wound up particularly the employer's role in terms of triggering wind up because then it's part of that education piece making sure employers know that they will have to do some actual governance steps in terms of issuing written notice or, or whatever the process is required and and also surplus which is which is one of the, the powers that, that may be relevant as well and and what's also worth noting is that sometimes there's some provisions in the winding up rules about how member benefits are de- to be determined and defined which we actually find can help provide a little bit of flexibility if you've got a little bit of a stumbling block Sometimes those powers within the winding up process help help overcome some of those apparent obstacles. So, so once we've done all that, then then we're usually reviewing the benefit specification. Um, sometimes we're asked to draft it. Typically, the administrator drafts it, and then we then review it. Um, and from our perspective, it's it's very much a, a case of checking through the rules, discussing it with the administrator, just really flushing out any any particular issues and that's really one of the key actions in order to then be able to approach the market so i'm, I'm going to ask the question firstly of, of becky how how straightforward are you finding that process in my experience it's actually been uh, reasonably straightforward the actual process itself so the way that i've seen it work best in practice is that the administrators draft the benefits specification um, and then this is reviewed then by the lawyers 
But I think the fee- the key feedback we we've been getting is to make sure that the benefit specifications written in a way that clearly ties clearly ties in with the benefits data and the actual administration practice. So we need to make sure there's there isn't any disconnect. Um, and it's really important for the risk transfer advisor to act as the conduit so that it isn't an insurance insurance friendly format. And so while different insurers might have different formats, you want it as close as possible. So in such a busy market, we're hearing from the insurers that if a benefit specification isn't clearly written in a way that ties in with the benefits, the data and the actual administration practice, that that could actually be the difference between them providing a quote and not providing one. I think the only other point that I've got on this is um, if residual risk is being considered, then it's worth considering this alongside the drafting of the benefit specification because we know that if we're going to get residual risk, that the data and benefits are going to be looked at in a more robust way and that you're going to be wanting to do more due diligence yourself first. So you want to have a clear understanding of any issues that there might be. I mean, I think I'd, I'd sincerely, I, mean, I totally agree with all, all Becky's comments there. I mean, I think our processes, we, we prefer the administrator to write the spec because often the trustee and rules is silent on some of the small smaller uh, points of administration. So getting the administrator to write it, you get a much more fuller spec other than the legal advisor. I think where the legal advisor then comes in is helping the trustees think about the discretionary elements within within that benefit spec and how to to do that. And then and then Becky makes some really, really good points Um that whether where a good risk transfer advisor can can ensure um, two things actually one the benefit spec and data should leave no ambiguity as to how the scheme works because ultimately the the, the one thing a, a risk transfer advisor can do wrong is not is put a, a set of quotes in front of a trustee that aren't apples for apples I mean they have to be apples for apples for you to be able to do a proper comparison of you know who is best and which insurer is best for the scheme and so you, you the benefit spec is critical to be very crystal clear on benefits and then the other bit uh, again i mean you know insurer format but what we hear insurers talk about uh, receiving benefit specs where the tranches of benefits within the benefit spec do not tie up to the tranche of names within the data set and you know frankly that's just lazy um and, th- and those two things should be aligned and, and you know i'm not surprised that insurers receive specs and data misaligned uh you know think well th- this is not one for me clearly they're, they've not taken any you know due care and attention to what they're bringing to market i think really any, anything that makes the insurers lives easier has got to be a, a good thing for the for the trustees and the scheme in, in getting these projects to market something where where we're often involved is around the I suppose the discretions piece, and we we will we will go through and identify any particular discretions or, or areas where there may be codification. I think the other two elements that, that keep us keep us occupied, keep our brains engaged, are around any any potential issues or historic skeletons. Um, Equalisation is, is is perhaps an obvious one, but happily most schemes seem to be be on top of equalisation. I think the other one to really be mindful of is, is the odd benefits, of the quirky wrinkles that are slightly out of filter with insurance companies, kind of vanilla benefit structures. So things like underpins, fixed factors and, and bridging pensions are all potential aspects where there needs to be some good planning. And I think what we find is the sooner that, that that they're identified, the better and the easier it is to manage either to find a solution outside of the insurance process or or, or, or 
present them in a way that the insurer will say, yep, we're happy to price for for that. Is that something that you found on, on some of yours, Becky? Because I think you mentioned you've had some underpins and fixed factors issues in the past. Yeah, it is. And I agree with everything that you've just said. Um, I think that it's better to pick up any benefit work as early as possible. So this probably, you know, in, in advance, maybe even doing your benefit specification, um, if that's possible, particularly if you've got, you know, you know, you've got some unusual benefits, which might be uninsurable or they could be really expensive to insure. It's good to consider them um, as soon as you can. And so, as you said, I've had schemes where um, we've had underpins where we know that um, they might be difficult to insure um, or expensive. And so we've considered really early on in the process how we deal with them uh, with input from the risk transfer advisor as well. And there can be solutions such as, you know, removing underpins. It's not necessarily always possible, but there's things that you can think about. Again, you, you commented on uh, factors. So I, I've seen similar. So where we've got fixed factors um, in scheme in, in schemes. So again, might not be impossible to insure some of these, but it can be really expensive. And so there are sometimes, you know, different ways that uh, solutions that these can be dealt with in advance of actually, you know, going to market. And the last point you mentioned was bridging pensions. Again, that's something that I've also seen that not necessarily viewed very favourably by insurers. Um, it could be that an insurer might be willing to to kind of um, insure insure those, but it would be at premium. So again, it's just something that you you need to start thinking about early. And then, of course, there's the age old question of while you're going through this process, and someone goes to court, so you get a judgment on something that has far reaching impacts on all schemes. And- thinking in particular of the recent case on contracting out certificates and both your thoughts would be be welcome on that. I, I think where where we're looking at it is I think, think where trustees are looking at these projects, they need to be aware of this as a potential issue and um, get their invol- advisors to, to comment on what they think is needed both at this point in time and, and as the, the case and thinking around the, the judgment evolves. Yeah, I mean, that, for my take on it, I mean, it's um, it, it, it's something again that probably encourages all employers to to want to get on with a buyout and and get these projects done before you know somebody makes CV pensions even harder again. Um, I mean, you know, on live cases we've got at the moment, obviously we're we're all responding to this and trying to think through what the scheme needs to do. I think um, you know, I don't know whether Becky's set as current schemes that they're working through about are the same as mine, but actually I think we'd be quite fortunate on what we're working on that, you know, the the, the schemes actually got um got the certificates and actually got they got the evidence that things were actually done right. I don't know if that's just um a lucky uh, subset or whether that's uh, you know more of a kind of general trend across across the industry. Um, yeah, I think in terms of approach that, that we're looking at this, um, I suppose as a business as a, as a whole, that we you know looking to advisors um, and just gathering our thoughts on it at the moment. I think I think it's important to be thinking about where you do currently have a scheme that is currently bought in and maybe is going towards a buyout quite soon, um, and also maybe a scheme where it is going to be winding up quite soon. And you know, if you've not already spoken to your legal advisors on those ones, it's probably worth worth doing that now. Um, I know there's another um, hearing coming up in July 
Thank you, Adam and Becky. That's about it for us from episode one. We'll be back to talk some more around further stages in the risk transfer journey, particularly around the contract process, communicating with members and the journey to buyout. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please do send them to pensionspsl at shoesmiths.com. That's pensions, P for pensions, S for shoesmiths, L for lawyers at shoesmiths.com. Website details for ourselves, K3 and Vedette, will be in the biography for the episode. Thank you.